This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Well, welcome to Water Cooler. It's our weekly chance to run a few ideas around the test track, see how they survive. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Martin Isles, the Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby from Canberra. Martin, welcome to Water Cooler. G'day, Nick. It's really good to be with you. A year ago, I don't think either of us would have dreamed of doing this. We wouldn't have had the technological capability. That, that I guess, is one good thing. We might get out of COVID. That's, that's true. I think that that's exactly right. Uh, everything's changed. Um, not only the popularity of online content, but uh, for an organisation like us, we've actually found a whole lot of new ways to innovate around what we actually do in the grassroots um, and the way we train volunteers and the sorts of campaigns we run. So it's been, it's, it's, it's been a mixed bag and we've, we've found it to be really interesting. We were just talking before we pressed the record button about the, the audiences that you can reach with these sort of ventures. You, you're, you've got, you're in the millions, right? Millions. That's right, yeah. So I think we were fortunate because um, we happened to get ahead of the COVID um, spike, if you like, or the COVID event. Uh, when I took this job February 2018, it wasn't too long before I thought, look, let's have a crack at um, online. Let's have a crack at digital content production. Um, I think there could be a niche that we can fill and uh, that, that people could be could find desirable. Uh, and it turned out that those instincts were correct. But uh, also we were ready to go. You know, we'd already got a bit of a baseline audience built up. And we certainly found that as soon as COVID hit, the consumption of online content sort of went up to a new level altogether. But by virtue of being there already, uh, I think we, we had an established presence. And, and you're right, we're now reaching several million people, you know, sometimes five million people with videos uh, every month. And that's a global audience, but even within Australia, uh, it's in the millions. I think, for example, if you're a Sydney resident uh, over the last three months, uh, the last quarter, uh, I think one fifth of Sydney residents uh, encountered, watched one of our videos. So it's pretty good penetration uh, and at similar figures across the country. Well, it would stack up well against the ABC, I would think, in terms of viewership. Well, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. I, I think that if, if we can uh, provide competition to the, AC, uh, um, the ABC and, uh, and give a different viewpoint, then I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, well, I think I know which one I prefer to watch. But, um, but I think what's happened, Martin, is that we now almost have this quite alternative TV network, don't we, apart from... You know, not just free to air. Uh, you know, not just Sky with all its glory, but but something like this that people watch at home and in quite large numbers. Yeah, I think so. And um, the competition's getting pretty stiff, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of uh, alternative content producers um, on alternative media, and uh, there's stiff competition. Uh, and uh, I think that the need for content that's worth listening to, that's engaging, uh, is, is increasing uh, if you want to compete. Um, but also, I think that one of the really big stories coming out of the last decade is that young people simply don't consume mainstream media anymore. Um, so my generation and below, um, they don't watch free-to-air telly. They don't read newspapers. They don't. It's just not how they function. Uh, they can find stuff far more uh, entertaining stuff, stuff that they find um, just meets their exact um, interests and speaks to them in the way that they think uh, through online media. And so I think YouTube is the biggest TV network in the world. Uh, and that is where particularly young men hang out. 
uh, but young people in general. I think there's going to be a huge revolution in the media space. There has been, but it's just going to continue as those that are young get older. Just to continue talking about COVID, if we may. Uh, one thing um, uh, Adam Crichton uh, from The Australian was commenting at a, uh, at a Zoom event uh, uh, yesterday that um, he thought that part of this overreaction, if you like, to COVID was that people no longer have faith to see them through these moments. It's almost as if they expect the government to step in and make them... And there was this sense at the beginning, right, that the government wanted to keep everybody alive, everybody possibly alive, but of course governments, indeed people can't do that. It's, it's never our decision. Yeah, I think at the time I reflected on something that I've been reflecting on for a while, and it's, you know, it's what I call, and I'm not the first person to use the phrase, but the hypertrophy of government which is that, you know, all things have their place, all things have their role, all things have their function, and all things can achieve something, but they can't achieve everything. But we're in a situation at the moment where people look to government almost as if it is a, a, a godlike entity, where they overestimate what it's responsible for, they overestimate what it can achieve. And also, I think people put a great deal more of their happiness. They invest a great deal more of their happiness and their, their psychological condition into who is in government than I think is healthy. And I've seen this in a whole lot of ways. Um, you know, one of the ways would be uh, climate change extremism, where you get the idea that the world is going to end unless the government saves us from the end of the world. Now, you can believe, not believe in climate change extremism, but be quite comfortable with the idea that the climate is changing. You could even be quite comfortable with the idea that humans have an impact on the climate. But that kind of extremism, that the government and intergovernmental bodies and international bodies are our saviour in the face of imminent doom, is, I think, a really classic example of believing that governments can do far more than they can. Uh, I think coronavirus is the same. Uh, and I think that the idea that a government can extinguish a virus or even should extinguish a virus, given the costs that come along with that, um, is, is a very modern Western idea that government is the highest authority we know. Government can give and take away more than anything else we know. And we're starting to invest so much of our life and security in government that we look to them for everything. I think there is a spiritual lesson in it for sure. And I think it probably is, I mean, there's a lot of things feeding into this. It's, it's not just a faith thing, but one of the things feeding into it certainly is the loss of uh, people's belief that there is something more important, there's something greater than, there's something far higher than government. Uh, and so they look to the government as the highest and greatest thing and give it that almost godlike yeah, there's, status. There's enough for about 10 podcasts in what you've just said to unpack. But uh, you know what gets me, Martin, is, is, you know, you're right. People do have this tremendous faith in in government, but it, it goes against all our experience, right? Everything in, in the last hundred years shows that, that uh, government barely does the things it's supposed to do very well. And when you give it something very ambitious to do, it, it fails completely. And particularly, you know, you mentioned the climate change um, discussion there, but in the international arena, you know, governments getting together and fixing things, it doesn't have a very good track record, does it? So why do people still have this faith in it? Yeah, they 
tend to make the, a pretty ham-fisted effort of things. Um, you know, I think a great example would be the, the UN Human Rights Council as it currently stands, where you have Saudi Arabia uh, and you have China and you have, uh, uh, you know, all of these countries. You look at the list and you think to yourself, good grief, you know, this is meant to be the world's great hope to protect human rights. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's madness. Um, and and there's, there's, there's no, I mean, I re I'm reminded of the Kerry Packer, uh, that famous viral Kerry Packer video where he's before a Senate committee and they're really sticking it to him about paying his taxes. Uh, and he's saying, look, I've paid all the taxes that uh, I'm legally obligated to pay. And he says, and to be honest, you're not using them in such a way that I feel like I should be donating extra. Uh, and I thought that's just so funny and so true. I mean, we all know how much of a mess governments make of things. And you can look at the, the most interventionist government in Australia at the moment would be Victoria. And you can look at the way the, the, the Victorian government takes on that role of saying, well, we are going to extinguish a virus and show that we can conquer it. Uh, and we are going to keep you safe. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the, 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 the cure is worse than the disease. Um, and you can see there a government that's just boxed the whole thing up. They have just made an absolute ham fist of everything that they have touched. Um, you can look at the hotel quarantine program. You can look at the, it just, it's just a mess. And that, that, you know, we look at all of that evidence around us and yet we still, we still sit here and say, oh, government will save us. Please, government, come to my rescue. And, uh, you know, I've often wondered why is that? Why, why do we feel that way? Um, and I wonder whether part of it, uh, is, well, there is the faith question. Uh, there's also another question, which is, I think just about everything these days has become political. Um, you know, we've politicised nearly everything we touch, everything we look at. Uh, education is highly political. Uh, speech is highly political. Uh, you know, um, uh, even mathematics is being politicised these days where they're trying to get, you know, a lot of ideology chucked into the mathematics lessons, whether it's, you know, uh, gender ideologies and all sorts of things. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. And I just wonder whether there is something about our belief that in politics really is power over pretty much everything. Um, and, uh, you know, if we have power over things, then we can make them work for our benefit, even to unrealistic extents. Um, it, is a, it is an overconfidence, I think, in the human condition and an overconfidence in what we can achieve if only we have the power. Um, and, uh, and again, I think that is, that's, that's a deeply rooted thing that comes out of people's, um, you know, their faith position, uh, whether they realise that they've got a faith position or not. Yes, I'm with Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby. Martin, just for maybe a handful of people listening or watching today who, who aren't familiar, just bring me, tell us about the Australian Christian Lobby. What are you there for? What do you do? Sure. Um, sure. The Australian Christian Lobby really these days is a grassroots movement. So it's a people powered movement of very nearly 200,000 Australians now. Uh, and the motto is truth made public. And so the whole idea is to you know, make truth public. Uh, that is to take action. Uh, so that we can affect politics and we can affect culture, uh, you know, for the cause of what is right. Um, and the way we do that is through a whole lot of grassroots campaigns. We also do it through media and alternative media commentary um, as well, uh, and through going into the parliaments with that backing of that grassroots movement uh, to speak to politicians. So it really is a people-powered movement these days. And it, it's an it's important presence, I think, in the Australian political scene. I, I think you you come to be recognised as, as a, I can dare call you a lobby group, a lobby group that, that represents a, the views of a large 
percentage of the population. So if, if for no other reason than that, politicians, I think, have learned to take notice and listen to you, right? Well, that's the idea, of course. Um, and I think one of the, the benefits we have is that we've been around for a while. Um, we've been around since 1996. And um, that means that we've got a bit of pedigree. Well, we're well recognised, particularly amongst our constituency. Um, but uh, one of the things that you rightly identify is the importance of um, speaking for an identifiable and significant group of people. Uh, and one of the things that we've been doing is transitioning from a purely representative lobbying model where, say, someone like myself goes in and talks to politicians on behalf of others. And we're transitioning very strongly into a model whereby we, we do a lot of participatory lobbying. We actually invite people in to become activists in their own right. Uh, and not only to speak up for what they believe in into the political process, but to evangelise to others, uh, to, to show them the importance of the issues of the day. And uh, we find that uh, simply by having a constituency that proves itself by its voice and its presence and its actions, uh, we find that, uh, that that's a very powerful thing in modern politics. And there's not many movements that can, uh, can corral the numbers that we can. And so, uh, you know, we feel uh, like we're very fortunate in that respect. Uh, but also, it's just interesting that it happens to be um, a, set of, a set of assets that we have that meets the current political climate really well. I have found that in the past, particularly when you go up into parliaments, they'll try and marginalise you into being a minority or not that diverse or not representative of the Christian community. Now, uh, the reality is I probably talk to more people from the Christian community in a given week than pretty much anyone, because uh, I travel the length and breadth of the country all the time, speaking, speaking, speaking. And I know for a fact that, the, that, that we are quite representative of the Christian community. And when I say Christian, I do mean, as you say, a broad church, literally. <laughs> you know, uh, There's Catholic, there is Protestant, and there's Orthodox, and all three traditions are heavily represented in our support base. And also our spread is pretty even right across the country from coast to coast. Uh, so we have a strong representation in, in every part of the country, uh, which, is, which is amazing to me. And um, uh, the reality is that I think that the vast majority of people, the thing, if you had to try and nail it down to, well, what's uniting them? What is it that makes them interested in what we're doing? It's not their socioeconomic situation. We've got rich, we've got poor, we've got middle class, we've got the whole lot. It's not the race. We have a huge racial spectrum. It's not the denomination. I think it is a shared concern that um, culture's changing. And I think that the thing that these people share is sort of an alertness to the political uh, realities of those changes. I think that they share a genuine concern for their future and the future of their children if they are to continue carrying the convictions that they carry in Australia long term. That, that, that concern, I think, really motivates people. I think it's very well placed. It's not artificial. Um, and it is a concern about their future and their children's future. And... Also, and fortunately, it's not just a self-interested concern. I think the, the people who support us genuinely believe that if culture is to change in such a way that their convictions and their beliefs are under threat and they themselves uh, are going to find it harder to participate in society fully in the future, they think, well, actually, that's going to be bad for society overall because what I believe, I'm sincerely convicted, is good and it's good for everyone. Uh, and so I think that's probably what unites our support base. I suspect, I mean, I know the numbers that you attract. I know the weight of support that you have. But I suspect if you went to 
some people in the mainstream media, dare we say, the ABC, they probably wouldn't have a clue. Uh, to them, you're some boutique, strange interest uh, group. Do you find that? I mean, do they treat you as if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're just a strange sort of boutique aspect of civic society? Well, they, they kind of used to. Um, it is interesting. I noticed a massive change, actually, um, around. So if we go back in time, I mean, a lot of people who are not ACL supporters or involved, probably the most recent memory they would have of ACL is the, the Israel Folau stuff. You know, we raised that money. We went through that process. Uh, and there was a lot of TV coverage of that, et cetera. It's quite high profile. And I just never forget going into the mainstream media um, studios and all that for interviews. So if it was Sunrise on 7 or if it was the Sunday Project or wherever it was. And for the first 24 hours, the interviews I got given were so unbelievably hostile you know I was fighting my corner like like uh like like nothing else and they were trying to trip me up they're trying to bring me down they were extremely skeptical they were really down on the whole issue they were totally critical and you just didn't get a fair run they weren't interested in what you had to say but it was really interesting the day passed um and uh, I think we raised basically two million dollars <laughs> in 24 48 hours and all of a sudden all of these media outlets that had got me on and give me an absolute shellacking you know, they got me on, they, they started contacting us and saying, please come back on, please come back on, please come back on. And so I thought, oh boy, I better put my boxing gloves on and go back for another round. Uh, and, and so I did. I, I showed up on Sunrise, I showed up on Today, I showed up on a range of it for the second time. And my goodness, weren't they all, uh, weren't they kind and genteel and supportive? And, uh, you know, I got all these Dorothy Dixer questions that were easy to answer. And, and all of a sudden, they portrayed the fact that they were completely on my side. Uh, and I'd gone in there ready for a fight, so I was kind of really thrown in the interviews the second time around. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, uh, they had exactly the idea that you would describe, which is, ah, you know, this is such a boutique thing. No one's on board with this stuff. This is just crazy, you know. And then they suddenly realised that actually Australians were sick of the political correctness. Australians really cared about their football and their favourite football star. Uh, and they were willing to put their money where their mouth was. And uh, the grassroots energy that that generated made them suddenly sit up and go, oh, we've miscalculated. We need to change our views. And I have found that since then, um, we're not so much regarded as sort of, a, a, you know, a, a curious side interest. I think we're regarded with a fair bit of suspicion, actually, uh, and, and a little bit of concern uh, as, to, as to, you know, what we really can achieve or what we want to achieve. And so the media have remained very sceptical, um, but I have noticed a definite change in their understanding of just how many quiet Australians there are out there who, who, who support us. It's almost inevitable, isn't it, that whatever point of view you argue from a position of faith um, is going to be, it's going to cut across the conventional wisdom of the elites. You're, go you're going to, whether it's Israel Folau, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's euthanasia, whatever it is, um, yours is not going to be the fashionable view in, uh, in Newtown, is it? Uh, does that make it hard when you go onto those forum to argue this, what is to them, you know, often a quite morally yeah. wrong position? 
I'm not there to make friends, I guess. <laughs> I'm there to sort of uh, try and speak with conviction. And um, I do feel very much as though um, it's an opportunity for me to speak up for the convictions of a lot of people who don't feel that they can speak up for themselves or they don't feel like they have the articulation to express what, they've, what they believe uh, or they feel like they're quite marginalised. I mean, one of the things that you can't underestimate is that when, when people who who feel, you know, if people feel the political correctness issue, people feel the burden of that, and, and, and so many do. So many feel like they can't say what they want to say. Uh, so many feel like they can't come out in the open with their beliefs because they'll be misunderstood, they'll be reproached, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's, you know, we see the quiet Trump supporter in America, for example, and, uh, you know, people who did research and said as many as 80% of Trump supporters were quiet supporters. They weren't comfortable with others knowing what they thought. Um, and, you know, there's a very similar thing going on in Australia. I mean, I look at, for example, just my Facebook page uh, and you can see that the people who follow my Facebook page, there'd be 75,000 followers, but only 41,000 likes. And the reality is that if you hit the follow button on Facebook, your friends don't know. But if you hit the like button on Facebook, everyone, you know, it comes up in, in, in people's news feeds. And I don't know, I've never seen a disparity like that between likes and follows. It's really unusual. Um, and, uh, and I think yeah, there's a lot of quiet people out there who feel the way they do. And I remember in the middle of the Falau stuff, I'd be stopped in the street every day by multiple people and they would literally whisper. They would, they would actually, you know, crane in and say, you know, thank you, but in whispered, hushed tones. And I thought, isn't this interesting? People feel like they cannot be who they are and they cannot say what they believe. Um, and you get this great eruption of energy and support when they see that actually they're not crazy, actually they're not alone, and there's someone there who's saying what they think, uh, and, and, and that has a tremendous inspirational power on people. Yeah, I think that's a big thing, Martin, isn't it, uh, that the people do feel, many people feel, um, you know, amongst their friends, and certainly many people in their workplace feel unable to, you know, just be who they are and to state their views as they are, and, and, and so I think one of the roles that you play, and I, I indeed to some extent the Menzies Research Centre and other bodies like ours, is that we can say to people, well look, it's not an unusual position that you hold, it's a position that's held by a lot of people. I think so, and I think that one of the, you know, people always say to me, you know, oh, what can, what can we do, you know, to change things? What, what can we do to you know, push back, so to speak? Or what can we do? And, and, you know, I think that the answer is conceptually so, so simple. Uh, and it is courage. Uh, now, obviously, it's complicated how that plays out and all the rest of it, but I actually think that the reality is there's more people with a conservative view of the world. There is a huge faith community in Australia, for example, massive. Now, you know, the ABC and all that, don't, they don't think that, but there is. It's enormous. Um, and so many Australians have faith, uh, but also so many Australians have a basically conservative outlook on things so many are suspicious of political correctness and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, these people, um, um, they, they exist. And um, I think that one of the, if, if they could have the courage to articulate that in sufficient numbers, that would go an awful long way. Uh, to answering uh, the concerns that they face at the moment. But at the moment, people don't have a lot of courage. People feel kind of alone. 
And so what we can do is give them an opportunity to see, firstly, they're not alone. They're actually part of a big movement. But also I think groups like the Menzies Research Centre, ACL and others, you know, there's lots of content producers and creators out there. Uh, and there's really a generation, particularly of younger people who are just drinking in their content like nothing else. They can give people the courage or the clarity or the foundations that they need to have a bit more confidence in what they believe and speak about it. And I so often just sit back and think, look, if everyone was just courageous, a lot of this would be over in an instant um, because uh, the courage of those with um, conservative inclinations or even Christian views uh, would overwhelm the noisy minority. I really do think that. Well, here's the thing. Um, out of the last six prime ministers, including the present one, uh, we've had one atheist. Right? <laughs> the other five have been... Uh, professing Christians of you know of different different kinds, but 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 every one of them it seems to me genuine in their their faith. Yep. It, it's paradoxical, isn't it? We don't we don't we don't talk about this. We don't we don't. There's no space in civic life for politicians to talk openly about the faith and how it guides them. Well, that's true, and I think part of it is. Um it's interesting. I heard someone say once that um, you know in in America faith is public and not private. Uh, whereas in the UK, faith is private and not public. Uh, and I suspect that we've probably inherited the British view on that, <laughs> which is that faith is, is private and not public. Uh, and it's a strange thing to me, you know. I, I think probably we could afford to be that way in the past because people had shared convictions, you know. Their view of the fundamental principles of life and the world were basically shared. Uh, and, and that basic sharing came out of a Christian or Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, and we're now in a situation where we don't share those things anymore. Uh, there is a tribalization of society that has a radically different fundamental premise that informs the way they see the world. Some have that Judeo-Christian, basically Judeo-Christian view somewhere at the back of the brain that's roughly articulating how they think, but others have a much more postmodernist uh, understanding of things and view of things, and it makes them radically and completely different. And so all of a sudden we're in a situation where, um, you know, once upon a time to speak of more fundamental matters of conviction uh, in public policy discussions, in public life, in public media, uh, we can't really afford to do that anymore because we're not supplying the roots. We're not supplying the foundations and the clarity that particularly a new generation are looking for, for how to think about the world. We're assuming that that doesn't matter, but it does matter now because all of those things are now contested whereas they once upon a time were not contested. And so I think that, that those things that were once held privately, they actually need to be courageously and unapologetically uh, actually articulated. And, um, and that's one of the things we're missing at the moment, I think, in Australian public life uh, and also uh, in the Australian public squares, where people are just prepared to say, well, let's start delving deeper and, and talking about matters of conviction uh, because all of a sudden we need to do that. Yeah. Tell me about yourself, Martin. What, what's your background? How did you get from wherever you started to this current job? Oh, it's, it, it wasn't a plan. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's anyone out there who says, oh, I want to be the, the, the managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby when I grow up. <laughs> it's not really, it's really uh, unusual. But look, I, um, uh, I actually ran a small business straight out of school or I started it while I was at school and that was uh, in, in IT and tech. Um, and that went really well for me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. 
um, and ended up in sort of a business-to-business market, doing a lot of networking and data supply and products and all the rest of it. Um, and that was that was fun. I really enjoyed that. But um, I ended up uh, wanting to go and do higher study um, and sink my teeth into something that uh, that, that I would ultimately be more challenging in terms of a career. Uh, and so I went and studied law. Um, and I've yeah worked at a, a, a top-tier law firm uh, prior to... Um, actually deciding to come and do a program called the Lachlan Macquarie Internship, which was run by ACL at the time and is still associated with ACL uh, for young people of faith who are interested in politics. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm interested in all of the above. I'll, I'll go and do it for a bit of a holiday for a little while because uh, I was working so hard. I was also doing a lot of, you know, church-based stuff as well. I've always been very much involved in, in the faith community and doing youth group and, and, and um, um, outreach to young people and all the rest of it. Uh, so I needed to break. I did that. And uh, while I was on the program, I was offered uh, a role at ACL. That was six years ago. Uh, we, I was chief of staff, but then we went and started a group called the, or I sort of stepped out of that to start a group called the Human Rights Law Alliance, which still functions today uh, and is still very, very busy today. And that's a law firm uh, which takes on uh, cases uh, where people have gotten in trouble with the law for living out their faith. So religious freedom cases uh, and takes them up and fights them. Um, so the Israel Folau type cases, all the ones that aren't famous, and there's an awful lot of them. Uh, and they're doing several pretty significant ones at the moment. Uh, anyway, and then at the end of that, tenure or while someone else is running that now I came back and did this job uh, on on invitation but yeah a bit of a roundabout route um, but um, yeah I think that um, I feel fortunate to have been able to be involved in a few different things. What are the things that are worrying you right now at the ACL what are the issues that have come up recently that you see as are things you've really got to take a stand on? I think that one of the really Big things is probably, I mean, in terms of issues, I would say religious freedom. Um, I think that what has happened is that there's been a lot of law reform over recent decades that have sort of crept up on us. A lot of reform in the area of anti-discrimination law, uh, which has then started to spill over out of, say, substantive discrimination, like denying people work and all the rest of it, which is all fair enough. But it's moved over into codes that restrict speech, for example, uh, or it's moved over into codes that restrict people's conscience rights. Um, and all of that sort of the groundwork for that's been laid over some time. But now, as we've seen culture change those laws have now been weaponized in a way that they weren't weaponized before. Uh, and I mentioned the Human Rights Law Alliance, and they are now dealing with cases of people who have been drummed out of medical professions because of their political views, uh, quite extraordinary stuff, and, and no longer work as doctors. They're dealing with, um, at the moment, a case of a, a couple who wanted to become foster parents uh, and were not allowed because of their Christian and religious views. Uh, they're dealing with quite a number of cases that, that involve um, uh, uh, vilification so-called vilification laws or restrictions on speech. You know, one young woman who was a mother who simply shared uh, a petition against Drag Queen Story Hour in her local library. Uh, and then she got, uh, she got uh, pursued by an activist through one of these tribunals. Uh, and she was actually doxxed. She had her address released and her phone number and all sorts of things. And the tribunal came after her. That kind of thing is going on uh, all over the place. And I see that Scott Morrison, you know, um, went to the last election on the promise of making some law reform in this area, um, made some progress on that law reform. But obviously, uh, with COVID coming along, it kind of got knocked off into the long grass. I think that's unfinished business. And I'm a little bit tired of having politicians say to me, 
Uh, you know, where are the cases? Is this really necessary? You know, we live and breathe, breathe the cases every day. You know, we've got dozens and dozens of these uh, coming out of our ears and some of them really egregious. And I think if that's not resolved, uh, I think what you're going to see is one of the real tenets of freedom for a society like Australia, which is the freedom to think and believe what you will uh, and to live that out in ways that are peaceful without the government and government funded bodies coming after you. Uh, I think that is so important. Um, and so religious freedom for me would be the number one. Yeah, look, I agree. And, and let's hope that uh, does come back onto the political agenda. It's very important. But there's a limit, isn't there, to what, what the law can do in this space? Uh, you know, how much you can guarantee this by law, particularly in a, a country which doesn't have a, a charter of human rights for good, very good reasons. But in the end, we just live in grossly intolerant times don't we i think things are getting worse or it seems to me even during covid the black lives matter movement and everything that goes around it just there's a growth in intolerance which uh, you know it's hard enough being on the center right of politics harder still i would think if 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 you if you a person of person of with faith. Yes, no, I think that's exactly right. I think one of the really uh, regrettable things is that, particularly from the left side of the political spectrum, um, there has been this. Uh, they've sort of declared war on ideas. Uh, they've declared war on thought. They've declared war on belief and opinion that does not uh, that, that that they see as uh, you know oppressive. Uh, and they, they use that language. Uh, what they really mean is that Western society as a whole, the edifice is oppressive. Um, and, uh, and when they talk about systemic, this uh, systemic oppression, systemic, you know, sexism, racism, et cetera, they, they're really targeting the system. And the system to them includes a number of things. And one of the things that the system includes is, is Christianity um, or Judeo-Christian thought. Uh, and so they've decided to declare war on those ideas, that thinking, that culture, uh, and they will suppress it by whatever means they, they like, um, and they will go to extreme lengths to do so. Uh, now, this is increasingly the case for some of the leadership movements like Black Lives Matter you mentioned. Um, that's increasingly, you know, you think of others like Extinction Rebellion or there's Safe Schools or there's, you know, there's a whole shopping list of these movements. Now, a lot of the rank and file don't feel this way. But there, are le there is, there is, there is left-wing leadership that is advancing these ideas. And I think it is, it is actually mostly those types that are leveraging the law uh, as a weapon uh, to go after people who believe these things and express these things. Uh, and for them, it's a cultural revolution. Um, that's, that's, that's what it is. And uh, it's, it's a shame because we've been built on the idea that, um, you know, we can actually share existence in common and re mutual respect, even though we, we don't think the same. But I suspect you're not going to be take this lying down as a movement. You, 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 you're getting people energised. You're getting people speaking out, and and that that momentum seems to be growing. Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. I remember when I first took the job, um, I, I said to somebody here internally, I said, you know what? Because I, I sort of sketched out what I thought we needed to do, and I said, I said, I said, we're trying to turn conservatives, uh, basically conservative Christians, into activists. I said, I just don't think that's possible. <laughs> you know, I just don't think it's possible. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I sit here now a couple of years later and I go, well, I never would have guessed it, but it definitely is possible. Um, you know, the rate at which we've got people prepared to stand on their own two feet and do stuff uh, is incredible. And I think it is because they are seeing what's happening. You know, they, they, they see, their, they, they feel the effects of this 
this, these movements and, and, and the suppression that they're getting. Uh, and it's not that they, um, you know, they don't feel the same way, that they want to actually destroy people with these views. They actually just want, what they're saying is, can I, can I be tolerated, please? Uh, could I be tolerated for who I am and what I believe? Uh, and that's the extent of the question. And in reality, the religious discrimination bill that was coming before the federal parliament, to a large extent, that's really what it was. Uh, it was saying, look, can we not be encroached upon? Um, and, uh, and I think that's how people really feel at the moment. And no, they're not going to take it lying down. That's a revelation I've had in the last little while. Uh, I think that there, there could be a real movement growing out of this. Well, you've always got friends here at the Mentis Research Centre. You, you, you don't have to be a Christian to be a liberal. Many, many are, many are not. But uh, I like to think that on, at least on our side of politics, we see your input as very important and we wish you all the best for the future, Martin. Well, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate that. And um, likewise, thank you for the work of the Menzies Research Centre. I've been familiar with your writing. I've been familiar with what you guys do for a while. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a great addition to, uh, to, to all the voices that are out there. Thank you. Welcome you back again soon, I hope. Thanks, Nick. been listening to the water cooler podcast coming to you from the menzies research center in sydney if you value this kind of free content then you can help us in two ways first we'd love to hear from you you can email us at watercooler at menziesrc.org you can also become one of the growing number of people who help support this work by becoming a subscriber to the menzies research center you can become a subscriber from just ten dollars a month go to menziesrc.org i'm nick cater thank you for listening you